Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today are Gabriel Green and James Hammer to talk about one of our favorite films, Back to the Future, again. <laughs> but first, this is kind of special because you two are sitting in my living room. Welcome. Yes, this is very nice. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this is awesome. Um, I got to meet Gabe in person for the first time this week, and now you. This is this is a first time for a lot of people now. Yeah, I always love meeting podcasters in person. I've met Mikey Thistle from Real World Theology in person once. I've met uh, Patrick and Aaron from Feeling Film as well, and now I get to meet you two. Uh, so I, I'm getting lots of podcast love all over the place. <laughs> it's it's really great. I'm glad to have you here. Nice. Uh, how about you reintroduce who you are, what you do, real quick, uh, before we move on and talk about what we're going to do today. Well, like you said, James and Gabriel, and we're from the Underrated Podcast. Um, although we're taking a break, hopefully just a short break, and we're going to be coming back with, uh, with a new show to talk about movies in a different way. Um, but we did just record our very last episode over Justice League, so... We got one last underrated for you before before our break. It seems appropriate knowing how you two champion DC films <laughs> to have your, your sort of send-off to the Justice League. Yeah, it wasn't planned that way, but it just it just worked out really nicely, since our first episode was Man of Steel. Right. I, I haven't seen Justice League yet. Um, I'm famously behind on seeing a lot of these in... or seeing a lot of these movies in general. I think I saw Man of Steel in theaters... But I didn't see Batman v Superman until many months, even after its uh, home video release, and I loved it. Oh, nice. um, I saw the Ultimate Edition, and that's that's the only version I've seen so far. I've only seen it the one time, but I liked it a lot. Um, I don't know if I'll go see Justice League in theaters or not. Maybe I'll wait for that extended edition. <laughs> we'll see. Probably for the best. Um, yeah. But uh, in any case, the three of us tend to enjoy those movies a little bit more than other people, so... Uh, like I said, it's it's appropriate that Justice League was your send-off before this soft reboot Definitely. for the show. Well, we're going to do something a little bit different today because, one, we're sitting in the same room. This is a more or less live episode where I'm not going to be doing a whole lot of editing. But James here, our, our good buddy James, is a little bit behind and hasn't seen Back to the Future. And so I was like... How about you come over and we'll make this the main reason for us to meet up. Aside from meeting each other, we will introduce you to Back to the Future and we will get live first reaction thoughts from you. And it'll be a, a great, cool new way to revisit Back to the Future on Cinescope after talking about the original film back in our preview episode before the show officially launched. So that's what we're here to do today. And just an excuse to watch Back to the Future again. Right, for, for Gabriel and I, for sure. And uh, we haven't watched yet. We're going to here in a minute, so we're, we're not going to live, live commentate the movie or anything. But uh, we thought we'd get James's sort of first thoughts before we watch the movie and what he expects and what expectations he might have. So before I do that, let's just go ahead and go over the stats like we normally do. This movie was released on July 3rd of 1985, was directed by my favorite director, Robert Zemeckis, who also directed hits like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, Castaway, and The Polar Express. 
It was written by Zemeckis and Bob Gale, and the music was composed by Alan Silvestri, whose filmography is basically Zemeckis movies, Captain America the First Avenger, The Avengers, the upcoming The Avengers Infinity War, and the second untitled Avengers film coming after that. The movie stars Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Crispin Glover, and Thomas F. Wilson. So James, you start us off. What have you heard about the movie? What do you expect from the movie? What What are your thoughts here? Well, so I, I'm really excited to see it just because for a while I just heard, oh, it's, it's one of the really fun movies from the 80s. You know, the 80s just had such a huge catalog of films that I know people who are just who grew up on them and swear by them and love them. But the more I got into film and the more, you know, I looked at different aspects of it and lists of top ten, whatever, the more I started to realize how important the movie is and how how great it is in terms of technical aspects. Like I I see it on, you know, best film structure, um, best usage of time travel in a film best it's it seems like it was recognized in a lot of different aspects than i thought i thought like i said it was just a good you know 80s action fun movie but the more i the more i looked into it the more i realized that people really praise this as more than just a fun movie so i know a lot of what gabe says before he'll see a class there's almost like a hesitation because it just has so much hype it has to live up to um, so I'm, I'm really hoping it does, but, it, you know, I, I, that's the danger of being the last person to the party <laughs> is that if everyone else loves it and you like it, it seems like you hate it. But, um, I, I'm definitely very excited. I have, I can't help but have high expectations, but like you, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Zemeckis. I think he's, he's a great director with a, who brings a really cool vision. And then just to relate it back to DC, he's currently... I are being eyed for the Flash movie, so maybe uh, maybe he'll come over to the DC side for a little bit. Yeah, I have a little bit of an opinion on him directing Flash, which we can get to at another <laughs> time. Uh, I'm not completely opposed to it, for the record, but uh, I, I do have some thoughts. But before I reiterate my first experience with Back to the Future, which I've done on the show multiple times before, uh, Gabe, how about you share your first experience? I... I don't remember exactly my first year. I know I, I didn't see it as a as a kid. I it was around nineteen or twenty. Um, I, I I remember I absolutely adored it when I first saw it, and I really quickly went through the rest of the series. And it just it's such a an incredibly entertaining movie. But as someone who really loves to you know dive into film structure and you know set up the payoffs, it's 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 a film that just keeps giving the deeper you look into it. Um. So yeah, it's been one of those films I, I champion as a kind of when I want to talk about a perfect film. I, I really love it. Well, um, with that, my first experience, pretty similar to you, Gabe, except I was a lot younger when I first saw it. Um, I was probably 10 years old or so. I think it was on TV. And I started watching probably after it had already started. I didn't start from the very beginning. Uh, but it was on. My parents said, hey, you, you probably enjoy this. And I said, sure, why not? So I watched it and I really, really enjoyed it. And probably for Christmas of that year, I got it, the, the DVD trilogy. Uh, got it sitting on the shelf right here next to me. The original I have that one too. widescreen. Uh, it, it's not all that great as far as DVDs go. But I, I, I wore it out when I was a kid. And 
watched all the special features and all that kind of stuff. And I've just been super attached since and got the Blu-rays when they first came out for the 25th anniversary. And I've seen it in theaters multiple times and I've met Christopher Lloyd. And it's just such an important film and film series to me that when <laughs> when I hear that people like James, who <laughs> claim to love film, haven't seen it, I, I have to remedy that. And so here in just a minute or two, we're going to watch and then we will be back with our thoughts. So James, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> okay, well, here we go. Uh, we will be back shortly after this break, and uh, we'll, we'll share what James thought of the movie. Okay, so we have just finished watching Back to the Future for James's first viewing. Uh, the credits did not finish rolling even five minutes ago, so this is about as fresh as we can get. So James, just initial gut reaction, what do you think? I get it. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah, yeah, I don't think we can be friends if you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I completely get why it's regarded as like a classic. Um, something I thought was interesting was it. It felt like the opening credits kind of knew that this is going to be like a classic. It, it was building towards something like they were making this with with the intention of this is going to be a big deal to to the people who love it. The, the slow build, the way it, it knows that it's introducing us to characters that are going to stick around for decades. Mm -hmm. Like when Marty finally shows himself as he gets out of like the pile of books on him and takes off the glasses <laughs> or Doc Brown comes out of the door. It's like they already know these characters are going to be beloved. And so, yeah, it I get it now. The 80s films had a way of doing that with introductions and the way they would kind of announce their films with all this bombast. It's super similar to Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, you see bits and pieces, and then he's revealed. Like, the, the movie knows exactly. Like, it's like it's seeing in the future. It's like, okay, well, this is going to have a reputation, so let's earn it. It's funny that you say that, because this movie spent a long time trying to get made. You know, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gill have been working on this for years, <laughs> and it no studio would pick it up. Disney said it was too raunchy because it's incest. <laughs> and every other movie studio said it wasn't raunchy enough. And so Spielberg steps in and says, hey, you and I, Robert, are friends. Let's let's make this movie together. And Bob Zemeckis said, well, you know, I don't want to make this movie just because I'm friends with Steven Spielberg. And so he goes off and he directs Romancing the Stone with uh, Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner, I believe. And uh, that movie's a smash hit. And so... He's proven himself, and then he says, okay, now, Steve, you and I can make Back to the Future. Mm -hmm. And so it's funny that you, you get this air of how it knows it's going to be a classic when they had to fight so hard to get it made in the first place. Wow, that's, I know nothing almost about the production of the movie. Uh, that's interesting. Well, let's just go through our typical Cinescope category. So story-wise, what stands out to you? And Gabriel, you're free to join in here as well. Uh, back to normal Cinescope. <laughs> traditional format um i i like that the the story was very very grounded in its characters um in both time periods it's it gives its characters a lot of quirks and a lot of personality and everything about the story like the story itself is interesting but it's the characters that that drive it and it's it's their personality flaws and strengths that kind of shape the plot and the new problems are a result of because of who these people are. So nobody felt filler. Like everybody feels 
like their own unique person who serves their own unique function in the plot and it all it all works really seamless together to cr to actually shape a story um so yeah i like that a lot about it yeah i think that's part of that iconic feeling is that every character gets their special memorable introduction and then like all, all of the jokes are kind of based in character and they're not most of them just they're not just like committee written one-liners each one kind of is built off your knowledge of who this person is so it's definitely very character driven i am curious james how many of the setups and payoffs the especially from beginning to end that you caught like uh did you catch lone pine mall versus twin pine mall <laughs> no i didn't i didn't even see that Yeah, at the end of the film of course it's called lone pine mall because at the beginning when he first gets to 1955 he runs over a pine tree oh <laughs> whereas yeah, at the beginning of the film is twin pines mall because there were two I want to. I honestly wish like I could just rewatch it right after that because there was a lot you know that I cut. I probably cut some of the more obvious ones you know like uh, you know looking at the truck and saying one day and uh, uh, you know the dynamic between a lot of the characters and stuff and then the clock at the very beginning with the man hanging from mm -hmm. the from the um, hand. So, but I have a feeling there's probably a lot that I can go back and reappreciate. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, for me, I, I've said this before, I love the the concept of time travel in general. Now, Back <laughs> to the Future, as much as I love it, isn't my favorite presentation of time travel. I've always been more of a fan of the Prisoner of Azkaban oh, yeah. uh, set timeline where you can't affect change. Everything that's going to happen has already happened, and your actions resulted in that no matter what. Like, it, hurts, I, I, it hurts your head a lot less to think about it that way. <laughs> right. I, 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 the, but that almost in a lot of ways, at least in the case of Back to the Future, it lends to a less interesting movie. It's fun looking at a movie like this where everything you do has an, uh, uh, an, a consequence. So Marty, we, we hear the story before he time travels, before he even we even meet Doc, and he hears the story again for the millionth time of how his mother fell in love with his dad after her dad hit him with the car. And then as soon as he gets to 1955... Who does her dad hit with the car instead? Marty. And so it, it, it's interesting to know how things are supposed to go. And then all of a sudden, a wrench is thrown in that because Marty interferes in a way he's not supposed to. Uh, I, I really like, at least in this film, that concept of time travel works really, really well. Yeah, and it almost, it's kind of the punchline to something you didn't even realize was a joke. You know, like, oh, what were you doing bird watching again? And like, <laughs> I mean, it's, that's the kind of, a, okay, whatever kind of line the first time through. And now, like, we get the punchline, you know, 20 minutes later. And so we, on rewatch, we're like, oh, it's, it's really funny the way going back, we're kind of answering the questions that, that we might have at the very beginning. And I just think it, it's super, it's coherent. Like every line, they know how to pay off. Yeah, there's there's hardly a line that doesn't somehow come back later. Just like the opening, the, the clock tower thing, where it's a complete throwaway. Kind of the comedic uh, gist uh, gist of that scene is the the woman's interrupting uh, him and Jennifer from kissing, mm -hmm. but actually it comes back to be the main plot point for the rest of the film. Right, and uh, even little things like the fact that Uncle Joey didn't get didn't make bail, <laughs> and we 
okay, he just didn't make bail. We don't know what he did. We don't know why he's in prison, but then we meet him as an infant, and we find out he doesn't like leaving his cage, uh, he, his, his crib. He, he says They say that he cries every single time they take him out, so they just leave, it in there, leave them in there all the time. So we get explanations and backstories to characters that we don't even technically meet. I mean, Joey's a baby. And then Marty is finding out things about his parents that... I think that sometimes we all wonder about our parents, you know, growing up in a household, spending time with our parents, especially while we live with them at zero to 18 years of age, we don't, we only get the picture of our parents that we see in the home. And Marty gets this opportunity to go back and actually experience what his parents were actually like when they were his age. You and, smoke too? Yeah, you smoke too? I think and, she was born a nun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He He has this entirely different concept of what his parents uh, are and who they were versus what they were actually like just because there's parents you, you don't ever picture them in the same scenario as you but Except you got to dad. go back he was right. completely the same <laughs> <laughs> pretty much what else as far as story goes um well kind of continuing from what you were saying there i i did like how it uh it had a, a good positive relationship between he and his parents and it's only reinforced by going back to where he kind of he is able to see who they were beforehand, and um, it looked like he had obviously a positive relationship beforehand. But now, now that he knows them better, and he's, and then obviously he's kind of changed their future and helped them for the better. Um, to me, I always end up getting a little annoyed because I feel like the whole dysfunctional family thing is overplayed in movies. So to see like a healthy relationship between kids and like a positive. Um, Maybe it's not you know the central message of the the whole film, but just a a positive portrayal of um of their family and like how learning more about them helps you empathize with them more and kind of understanding where they're coming from, as opposed to just like you said, you know he assumed his mother was born a nun and to to kind of see what she was helps you better understand people when you know you know where they're coming from well, at the start of the film, Marty has auditioned for this battle of the bands and is rejected by the the judges that you're just too darn loud and he has a speech with jennifer where he says you know I, what if i turned in this audition tape and they rejected me i don't know if i could handle that uh i'm starting to sound like my old man because that's what he's heard his dad say and then when he's back in 1955 and he learns that his dad used to be creative used to write stories and was a uh, uh, very into science fiction and he doesn't share his stories because he's afraid of rejection. And he says, yeah. wow, I, I identify with that. That's how I feel. Maybe I'm a little bit more similar to my father than I realized. And I, I think there's a lesson in there as well where uh, we, we just don't know sometimes. And until we see somebody in, <coughs> I don't, don't want to say their natural habitat, but sort of in that gist. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, let's just go ahead and talk characters. What did you think about Michael J. Fox's Marty? Uh, I, he's got, and he had so much charisma in it. This is actually uh, the the second film I've seen him in. The first time I saw him was whenever we watched uh, The Frighteners for Underrated. Um, so I already knew that I liked him. He's just, he's, a, he's the kind of actor that like the screen just loves. Like mm -hmm. it's impossible not to put a camera in front of him and for there not to be like some sort of spark. Um, his his delivery is great. He's got chemistry with anything that breathes. He's <laughs> he's just he's such a likable character, and he's well written to where 
you know, even even outside of his performance, it's just a solid character who gets a, you know, a, a fun arc and it. Um, I don't know. I I can't really picture anyone else who's going to be that inherently fun, um, with that the kind of personality in an actor that young to carry a film like this. I just think he did a great job. Yeah, and he's not your traditional like suave James Bond kind of main character. He's got kind of a high pitched voice, constantly tripping around and bumbling around. Yeah, as you said, there's something so insanely charismatic and watchable about his uh, screen presence. Since I've already sort of done this episode with TJ and Joe back in the beginning of Cinescope, I'm free to uh, divulge a little of my Back to the Future knowledge. You know, <laughs> Michael J. Fox was the original choice for Marty, but he wasn't the original one cast. Eric Stoltz was the original uh, person cast as Marty because Michael J. Fox was too busy <coughs> filming Family Ties during the days, and so he wasn't available for Back to the Future. They filmed for a couple of weeks with Eric Stoltz. The chemistry with him and Doc in particular just isn't there. Mm. Um, so after two, three weeks of filming, they say, listen, uh, they, they go to the Family Ties producers and say, listen, we need Michael. And so they ask Michael, they leave it up to him, and so he accepts. And during the day, he's uh, filming Family Ties. During the, e the evenings and early mornings, he's filming Back to the Future. So a lot of this movie was filmed at like two, three in the morning um, and over weekends, of course, for some of the daytime shots. But it's it's funny. I've, I've read interviews with Michael J. Fox where he really doesn't remember a lot of the production of this movie because it was just such a whirlwind time of his life where he was filming a sitcom during the day and filming this all night and was getting maybe two hours of sleep if he was lucky. Uh, having been on a film set, just only one film set at a time, I can't imagine at, at all doing something like that. I mean, one stressful enough. Right, but it's it's truly a testament. Like you guys are saying, there's so much charisma and personality in Michael J. Fox inherently that it makes sense that they would almost derail production to get this guy on set because he carries the movie so well. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously leading into Doc Brown. Mm -hmm. that, that That's such a fantastic character um just i mean when he not even when he's talking just watching him in the background of seeing the way he reacts to everything <laughs> is these huge hysterical expressions um yeah, he's just so much again just so charismatic and likable and, and uh they have there's such a wonderful believable friendship between him and uh uh marty like when he gets shot and marty's like no you you really buy that there's a there's a real connection between them yeah and <laughs> To me, that kind of performance, the line between, you know, what we got and cheese, I feel like it so could have easily have been crossed, but it's never, it's never done. It's always hilarious. Like, like you said, uh, half of the humor that comes from Doc is just facial. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just the way he reacts to the situation. And, you know, he's got such, such an expressive face. It's, you know, all he has to do is open his eyes and it's... <laughs> Uh, it's hilarious, and you you always know what he's thinking, and he's almost inaudibly commentating on every scene he's in. Uh, and yet, there there is a really believable friendship between the two, even from the beginning. Like the opening phone call, it feels like they kind of established a very legitimate dynamic between the two. Um, and then obviously, it's cemented by their first scene together, and the excitement the two have together. The their rapport, everything about it, it feels like we're watching a, a relationship that's already been established between the two. Um, I, I thought it was a really solid way to introduce us to the characters. 
we we don't know at least within the context of the movies how these two people met they just clearly got a strong friendship and they've been together in some capacity for a long time and what i love about the movie is when you consider the fact that marty has a friendship with doc in present day 1985 and also with doc in 1955 <laughs> and how his friendship with one strengthens his friendship with the other because they've been through this ordeal together and i i I love considering that when watching the film, thinking how Marty strengthens 1955 Doc's resolve to develop this time machine. He says, you know, you've really given me something to shoot for. Uh, you've made a difference in my life because you've come here uh, maybe by accident, but you've shown me what I can accomplish when I put my mind to something. And it's like Marty has taken the, doc, the, the advice that Doc of 1985 has given him if you put your mind to it you can accomplish anything and he goes back to 1955 and just spreads it to everyone he spreads it to to george and that circles back in 1985 at the end of the film he spreads it to doc and doc is all of a sudden so for uh, so much further dedicated to developing this time machine it's just a, a a cool relationship where the like i said the friendship in one era strengthens the friendship in the other and as far as Doc specifically and his facial expressions, probably one of my favorite scenes with him in this movie is when Lorraine <coughs> has followed Michael or has followed Marty to Doc's place. And uh, while she is asking him to ask her to the dance, Doc's just sort of giving him eyes in the background <laughs> like, this, is this really happening? And then when Lorraine says, you know, well, I, I think that a man should be able to protect the woman he loves, don't you? And Marty and Doc share a look because she's not wrong. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that does make sense. A, a man should be able to do that for the woman he loves. And so they're, they have to go from there to concoct a new plan that bolsters George in Lorraine's eyes. It, it's just this really funny scene where so much is communicated non-verbally. Yeah, my favorite is actually previously in that scene with the car burst into flames and the trash can a little scream he does. I, I actually got a painting that a friend did for me of that face. I think I have it here in my new apartment. I'll have to show you when that we finish. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love... Christopher Lloyd has been my favorite actor for a long time because of this movie. Uh, he just adds so much in the way of both comedy and character performance and then even just genuine heart in those moments where he is telling Marty, you've made a difference in my life. Or when Marty is preparing to say goodbye at the end of the film before he travels back, and Doc won't let him tell him what he knows about his future, and Marty is just trying to hold on. He says, you know, I, I, I hope we meet again in the future. I hope you heed my advice from this letter that I've given you. And Marty, like, grabs him by the shoulder and pulls him in for a hug because it might be the last time he sees him alive, depending on whether he follows his advice from the letter or not. I just love how much heart is present within that friendship. Yeah, and I I think it it really does show how good good of an actor he is because I think there may be a temptation to say, well, yeah, he's the comedy is really there, but it it's not a one note performance at all. He's not just overly expressing at everything and trying to be funny. There are those kind of moments of heart where you get genuine human emotion from him. So it's a it's a fully fledged performance it's not just um you know funny slapstick wide-eyed humor it's 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 a full performance that has a an actual arc that can be followed 
Now, what about Crispin Glover as George? Hey, to me, he was almost just as entertaining as, if not just as entertaining as, you know, characters like Marty or uh, Doc. Especially as the, you know, in the opening as the old man just content to sit in his living room and <laughs> move his arms all over the place and, you Eat know. balls of peanut brittle. <laughs> and slap at whatever's on TV. He, he plays that kind of 80s dad so well. Especially considering his age, like, he just... He falls perfectly into that kind of character, like without skipping a beat. Um, there, there's never a moment where I'm like, "No, this is just a dude uh, trying to play an old man." I mean, obviously, you can at certain moments you can tell like the makeup, but with his body language and his voice and everything, he's just—it feels like he just get gets lost in this role completely. Yeah, if I had not known he was uh, or seen him later in the film, I would have compl- If I watched that movie, I wouldn't have never second guessed his performance as you know. 50 year old um but yeah he's just so wonderful at being pathetic but still weirdly likable even Mm -hmm. though he's so such a sad character speaking of the peanut brittle there's a deleted scene where uh after biff has left after getting the the car towed to the house uh a guy from work or an acquaintance shows up with his daughter selling peanut brittle (laughs) for her girl scout troop or whatever the equivalent is and George is essentially bullied by this girl's father into buying a whole bunch of peanut brittle. And so that's why the very next cut is him taking a box of peanut brittle and pouring it into a bowl at the dinner table. So that still works. It it works, right. I mean, either way, it's pathetic. But knowing the backstory behind (laughs) that and knowing that he was bullied into having his own insurance pay for a wreck that Biff caused, uh, probably because of drinking while driving, um, and then getting bullied into buying peanut brittle of all things <laughs> bullied into buying peanut brittle uh it just shows so much about his character so early on um and in that beginning scene in 1985 when the the it's a family that loves each other and they're still with each other but there is a little bit of dysfunctionality there i think as well i mean lorraine is drinking straight vodka over <laughs> ice and she she seems to show at least a little bit of regret that this is the direction her life has yeah. gone. Um, and you can see the the way she looks at George as he cackles at J- Jackie Gleason on the TV that uh, maybe she she took a wrong turn or two in life, uh, but there, there's still something there. She, she She's telling the story of how they met and how uh, he looked like a little lost puppy. And she fell for him, and she's maybe just questioning whether that's still there. But... Uh, I, I love the way that George and Lorraine interact first at th- that beginning scene. And then as we go back to 1955, we learn that there really was almost no association between the two of them at all because they were from completely different social circles. Yeah. Yeah. And I I like that the movie does make that kind of as a statement that, um, Early on, there the potential for them to be happier together was always there. All it took was, you know, the kind of encouragement that he needed, and then obviously this movie goes the time travel route to get him that encouragement. But you see that kind of positive effect, and it it does kind of promote that um, much more healthy kind of marriage. And it, I like that the movie gives us that happy ending mm-hmm. where uh, everything kind of works out, and we're in a better place than we were even at the beginning. And I like that they didn't go to some unbelievable extreme with, you know, living in a mansion, driving around Lamborghinis or something, you know. 
they they're still the same place, but they you know they're obviously just happier people. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's just published his first book, and just he goes to show like they are in a spot they could have realistically gotten to if he just you know been more self confident and not allowed not continually made the choice to allow Biff to run over him, and you know just how you know, that one action of standing up to Biff at that one moment you know broke this cycle that led to you know, obviously is a much better life. One of my favorite George scenes is in the cafe when he's gone to ask Lorraine to the dance before the skateboard chase. And he's trying to read these scribbled notes that he got from Marty off of his, his notebook. And he says, my destiny has popped me to you. <laughs> and then he says, and I am your density. Uh, I actually have a shirt that says, I am your density upstairs. Um, but it's just, he's so quirky. And I mean, from what I gather, Crispin Glover in general is a pretty quirky guy. Uh, but he just brings something so unique to a character like George that I don't know, uh, just like with Michael J. Fox's Marty, I can't really picture another person in the role. Yeah. Um, now what about Leah Thompson as Lorraine? What did you think of Lorraine? <laughs> to me, it's, it, she spends most of the movie just kind of fawning over him, but she does it in such like this doe-eyed kind of... <laughs> Young teenage infatuation. Um, I think she calls him a a dream probably three or four <laughs> times. <laughs> and it's like I said early before we even watched the movie, it was always weird to say that I hadn't seen it just because my older siblings had seen it, and grew up on it, and I had seen some scenes here or there, and I I know so many so many of the lines like that one, and so it it felt like I had seen it, but now now I get why these are the quoted lines. Like I I understand why they're so iconic because of, you know, the repetition and that that's kind of what you associate with her character. Um, but no, I, I really, really liked her in the role. I think the biggest thing that we learned from Lorraine is how different she was as a teenager from the image she told of herself as an adult. Where I never sat in a parked car with a boy <laughs> or chased a boy or called a boy. And then literally... <laughs> In 1955, we see her do all those things. And she even says, I'm almost 18 years old. It's not like I've never sat in a parked car with a boy before. Come on. And she's drinking and she's smoking and she's doing all these things that you don't expect from this uh, attractive pretty girl uh, like like her. Uh, although we do see what she became after a lifetime spent with George. That'll do that to you. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Anything else to say about Lorraine? Um, well, I don't know about her particularly, but I, I just love, uh, like, the the weird chemistry she has with uh, Michael J. Fox, just how horrifically awkward she makes it. <laughs> just, how t- <laughs> kind of, just how terrifying and on edge she is throughout all their scenes together, and just how kind of blissfully unaware she is just like, <laughs> as she keeps coming after him. I mean, you can you can understand why Disney would pass on the movie like this, <laughs> because as as fun and innocent in a lot of ways it is, it it still is kind of a little bit of incest, uh, unknowing for sure, but it, it it's there a little bit. Um, now Biff as a villain, Biff is probably our last big talking point character. What else? What do you have to say about him? So I actually had seen a lot of his scenes, and I kind of knew everything, like every everywhere his character was going to go. Um, but it's it's way more enjoyable to see it in the. Uh, the context of the movie and it feels like they designed him to be like the stereotypical villain of the age or maybe not 
maybe less the stereotypical and more of like the kind of almost quintessential uh, <laughs> villain of this kind of movie where, I mean, he's almost every aspect of him is exaggerated. Like even his, his height, he's bigger than the second <laughs> biggest guy, or obviously he's bigger. He's going to be the biggest guy in whatever room he's in. And, you know, every, every kind of aspect there is in a bully is, you know, bumped up to 11 here. And, um, but just, you know, the, the repetition of lines from him, you know, calling everybody butthead. And, like it's, uh, you know, his, he may be the most kind of like archetypal kind of character, I guess, in terms of he, he's there to be the bully. Mm-hmm. But I, I forget the actor's name. Who, Thomas F. Wilson. He, he's clearly having so much fun in the role. And he just fits in this kind of movie so well. Like he's the perfect bully for both eras. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that all his whole character feels very at home in this kind of movie, and it it also works just because of how much blissful joy he brings to being this big oversized bully. I think Thomas F. Wilson at the end of the film as the alternate nineteen eighty five Biff in the tracksuit and the <laughs> the car waxing. Uh, I think that's more typical of a Thomas F. Wilson role. So to see him in such a, a threatening position as the bigger, tougher version of Biff, uh, it, it, I mean, I've played villains before back when I used to act. It, it's, it's a fun thing to do, mm-hmm. uh, to exaggerate uh, a part of yourself that you don't show very often. Um, and I think that he's silly enough as a villain. Things like... Uh, make like a tree and get out of here. Uh, I mean, that, that's silly, but I think he's also a believable threat within the context of the movie as well. Like when when he takes Marty out of the car at the dance and goes in there with L- Lorraine and basically starts assaulting her. I mean, you really feel the danger that she's in at the moment and the importance of George stepping in and interfering and rescuing her. Uh, so I, I like that he, he is a little archetypal. He is a little silly but he also poses a believable threat. Yeah, that that scene is incredibly dark. I mean, like I don't think you would get that in this kind of film these days. And yet, just having, as you said, he is a believable threat. He's legitimately scary. And but I think that, that extra amount of threat at that moment is what it takes to get, when, when uh, uh, George finally knocks him out, it makes that uh, moment so much more uh, exhilarating to watch. And, I mean, just as the series goes on, he continues playing different variations. You, I really get impressed uh, by him as an actor, but I think, yeah, as you said, the way he can play, whether it's Biff being an idiot and we're laughing at him, or being a legitimate physical threat, or in the end just being a total goofball, he plays through all of those really well. And he's always Biff. You know, it's always like Biff as a bully or Biff <laughs> as a loser. Like <laughs> right. He's not playing different characters. He's playing the exact same character where his life to take a different route and so for him to be always tapped into who Biff is as this person I think it just makes for a, a much more cohesive character than it could have been it's just oh here's I mean he looks the same but he's completely different whereas no this is this is the same guy it's just his life is in a completely different position right and and another sort of backstory to uh, what he says in the beginning of the film when he says say hi to your mom for me we go back to 1985 and we see how infatuated he was with Lorraine and we see that there was competition between him and George beyond just Biff being the bully and George being the victim. 
they're they both were sort of fawning after the same girl though biff had technically a lot more of a chance with lorraine than george did just because of his stature his personality his go-getterness uh even though lorraine didn't seem to be interested at all uh can't imagine why no I, no of course not uh but you would expect lorraine to maybe fall for more of a guy like biff than over than for george but circumstances hitting george with the car that kind of stuff that that changes things um but i i, I like that they have this sort of added level of rivalry between biff and george mm-hmm. anything else to say about any characters well actually speaking of that rivalry i like how there seems to be some sort of sense of history the first time we meet him He's telling me, I thought I told you never to come in here again. And the whole film's like that. You know, it feels like we're stepping into a story. You know, the friendship between uh, Marty and Doc. This is just, I, I always love when you step into a, a film that feels like it's going to keep going after we leave. It's just, I don't know, it, it makes the world so much more uh, believable. Yeah, as I said, we, we get that same sense in, in both eras. At the very beginning of the film in 1985, and then we stepping into it in 1955, it we're always stepping into a story that's already started. And I think that's one of the signs of a good movie is it's just, it's like it's crafted this huge picture and they're like, okay, we're only going to film this. But this all exists outside of it. And it, they never feel like they're having to cram in the stuff that's not on film into it. Like, no, anybody with the brain is going to be able to pick up on this world as it evolves. But we're not going to slow our story down. We're going to tell our story and this is where it starts. And so... Yeah, every character dynamic, you know, even the town, that's one of the things I remember thinking, you know, after the great opening credits and the awesome Huey, uh, Lewis and the News song, it's, <laughs> by the end of that, we, I feel like I already kind of understand a lot about this town, you know, we, from little things like the, the guy running for mayor, um, save the clock tower, you know, going by the, the people doing yoga and waving at them. Like, this is a fully living town that was existing before the cameras were rolling and will continue it to exist. So, yeah, everything from his relationship with Doc to the town and Biff, and it all feels like this, we're kind of just getting a snapshot of a living, breathing place. Because you mentioned the town, I, I just thought I'd mention this. Uh, the town square sequences were filmed on a back lot at Universal Studios in California and uh, they filmed the 1955 scenes first because it's a lot easier to dirty up a place <laughs> than it is to clean it up so they they filmed the 1955 clean cut everything looks pristine scenes first and then they go back and they dirty everything up add the graffiti add a little bit of wear and tear to the world uh, in the case of the clock tower at the end of the film you notice that after Doc stumbled on the ledge in 1955, the clock tower remained broken in the future in 1985 uh, at the end of the film, as opposed to the beginning of the film. Um, but they do that, and then they film the 1985 scene. So I, I think it's interesting to know the sequence of filming things uh, might not be what you expect, although it makes perfect sense because of production ease. Which makes the, the chemistry, the, the you know, building chemistry between the, uh, the cast members so much more impressive that they can maintain and build off of it in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's so convincingly telling us that he's seeing this as it's brand new, and he's like he's looking at his dad in a brand new light, as if this has kind of already happened. But that I, I am always impressed. The more I learn about, just you know, in a film, you're, it's almost impossible to shoot a film chronologically. Um, so yet yeah, to have that very cohesive way of interaction from start to finish is impressive. 
Now, let's go ahead and move on to the music by Alan Silvestri. Now, after the credits were rolling, you were still whistling the main <laughs> theme, so I take it you like it. Yeah, I. this is another thing where it's just being, you know, aware of pop culture and, you know, and kind of very movie-focused groups and very minded towards stuff like that. Obviously, I, I already knew the theme. Like, if you had played it even before this movie, I'd be like, oh, that's Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. But once again, it... Like almost every other aspect of this movie, I kind of already knew it's it means so much more within the context um and it by itself it's exciting but when when you pair it with you know a car chase or a skateboard chase or whatever it's it you you know why it's iconic because it earned it it's not just a great theme it's a great theme that really helped the movie and it's like the audible version of what we feel where it's just exciting. Um, and so yeah, like almost every other aspect, it, it was it feels like it was composed knowing where it was going to be remembered, like that it would take a place among so many other iconic themes. Yeah, I really don't know what I could add to that. <laughs> um, you, this score in this movie came at a time when everything was sort of overtaken by '80s synth pop kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, there were certainly composers out there still composing very traditional orchestral film scores. I mean, John Williams, just the year before, uh, the, the few years previous, had been scoring both Indiana Jones and Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Alan Silvestri had sort of been one of those composers uh, scoring films with a little bit more of an electronic sound. But they very much went <laughs> for a more orchestral sound for Back to the Future on purpose. They wanted this sort of return, this, this giant sense of scale brought to a film that you can't really accomplish the same way with electronic music as you can with just a full orchestra. And so I think uh, having a full orchestra adds to the adventure side of the film more than uh, an electronic score would add to like the sci-fi elements of the film, which I think was the right call. Mm-hmm. Uh, having the, the, I mean, the first time we hear orchestral music is the, the, the DeLorean reveal. In fact, I think that's the track title of the soundtrack is DeLorean reveal when Doc backs it out and opens the door and pops out. And then we get the the build into the actual time travel. And then there's all these little moments when when it first takes off and Einstein has become the world's first time traveler. We get this almost like silly, whimsical music uh, as Doc celebrates. And it, it there's so much character that I don't know if you could accomplish the same way with a synthesizer as you can with like a clarinet, for example, in that theme. Or later when you have the French horns coming in and playing the more morose kind of theme as Marty is writing the letter to Doc in Lou's Cafe telling him about how he's going to get shot to death. Uh, there's just so much, I feel like I'm saying this word a lot, there's so much character uh, that is added to the film through the score and helps to tell the story and the emotion of the story that much better. Yeah, and maybe having a synthesizer soundtrack instantly dates your film <laughs> that that too um, and uh, even though this film is so quintessentially 80s there is a timeless quality about it and i think that score goes a long way to helping that out yeah and i mean <clears throat> it, it's kind of a score that has to work across two decades um mm-hmm. or actually i guess oh yeah with the, with the 50s and the 80s and so you want that like musical cohesion and continuity and so using the synthesizers and then sorry <coughs> using the synthesizers and then trying to film that 50s stuff 
and maintaining that kind of theme is just a, a disconnect there. Um, and like what Gabe said, this, this movie has a timeless quality, and I just feel like and the orchestral sound is timeless. You know, we, we've heard it for decades and decades in film, and I don't think it's ever going away. And so by doing that, by just composing a very catchy and exciting and adventurous um, theme, and playing with the full orchestra, you can kind of use it wherever you want, and it's going to work. And so every scene in whatever era we're in here, it's always exciting, and it always carries the exact same kind of connotation of adventure and excitement, whether we're in the 50s or 80s. Yeah, and while the score is orchestral, they can still use like, the power of love to perfectly ground us in the 80s. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I just love that the score has like one main theme that epitomizes all of the action that takes place in the film, whether it's Marty escaping the Libyans, in the Twin Pines Mall parking lot, or whether it's him escaping Biff on the skateboard through Town Square, or whether it's him finally making the trip back to 1985 and Doc falling off the clock tower or ziplining off the clock tower to last minute join the cables together mm -hmm. and save the day. The same theme is used for all the situations and it works. It doesn't need to have uh, the concept of like leitmotif that John Williams uh, often uses in his scores, where each character has a theme or each place has a theme or an idea uh those certainly have their places but in back to the future Sylvester did such a good job of just composing one iconic theme and then throughout there is uh different themes that like i said like like the french horn theme that i mentioned that sort of represents almost the friendship between doc and marty or the the whimsical clarinet that is almost like the comic relief score as doc is celebrating his success or uh, various other points we heard in the movie. I, I I just think that Sylvester did a great job of not not making it minimal. It's not a minimalistic score, but it's also not overly dense. And the, and the theme never outstays its welcome either. You, when you hear it, it's because something exciting is happening. Mm -hmm. So every time you hear it in the film, you you almost want to hum along just because mm -hmm. it's you know you know that means something important within this film is happening. They don't. They're not. Um, I guess, vain in how they use it. It's just, you know, we, we say this, and when the scene calls for it, we're going to use it, because it's awesome. Right, it's a victory theme, and yeah. we want to cheer every time we hear it. Now, to, to sort of wrap up, going into our takeaways, what, just on first viewing, do you take away from the movie? Um, well, I, I feel like I've kind of had an easier time answering this question just because I've known to a certain extent, you know, what to look for. Were I watching this without the reputation it has, there's probably a lot of stuff I would have missed, but going into it, knowing how praised its structure is and um, how smartly written it is and that everything, all of the all of the setups and then payoffs, they feel so real and they all work. They're, there's not really one I can think of that feels like, okay, that was a bit forced. You know, <laughs> we, we set that up in a real cheeky way in the 50s and now we say, it, it all... It all works really well, so watching it with that in mind, I could watch and see, like, I'm noticing this moment, and I know it's going to come back, and then I see it come back, and uh, so, yeah, just how how well it was, uh, how, how well-crafted it was, I I wonder, you know, was there, like, a lot of storyboarding here, because, or not storyboarding, but it feels like this had to have gone through so many drafts, just because yeah. every single moment because it's so good that you were telling us, you know, with stuff with um, George, 
that was cut, you know, him kind of being bullied, you know, that there, we know of great stuff that would work that was cut. That means that whatever is here is here because it's absolutely essential to the story that Zemeckis wanted to, wanted to tell. And so I'm sure rewatching it now, I can watch every scene and like every action beat, every nod, every line, everything is serving a purpose here because even some good stuff had to be cut. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that earlier drafts of the script had the time machine as a refrigerator and they had to harness the explosion of a nuclear, like an actual nuclear bomb in order to time travel. Um, And I'm insistent that Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is referencing that version (laughs) of the script when they nuke the fridge. I I swear that's got to be true because Spielberg directed that one. I I swear by it. and I think originally Doc was supposed to have some sort of like chimp companion. And the movie was one at one time uh, wanted to be called the spaceman from Pluto or something like that. <laughs> like there, they went through a lot of drafts. You're right in pointing that out. And it's all for the film's betterment because what came out at the end and what we see on the film in the final draft is a tight script, uh, not a second of wasted time from any character or any scrap of dialogue, everything is furthering something or referencing something that happened before. It's just uh, a labor of love between the two Bobs, uh, Zemeckis and Gale. And they, I mean, it's clear that they put a lot of years work into this to create the final product that is so celebrated today. Yeah, and, and as a want to be a filmmaker, it's so inspiring just to look at, because you, you can see all the work and love that went into it and then you know you watch when you watch a film and it's not satisfying you can look and see where this film you know went that extra mile to add that extra setup and payoff that little character moment and just where everything comes together to when when he finally goes back in time and it's silent and then doc brown starts dancing the street you're just grinning from ear to <laughs> ear because everything has so beautifully led up to this i, I love how uh how uh, zemeckis uh, stages action and especially in that last sequence, just how he adds what, uh, like just threats upon threats, like where um, you know, the, the, the tree falls down and uh, knocks down the, uh, the wire, then the car won't start, then he drops the wire and his, oh, his pants are tearing and he's falling down. And it's just all these things on top of each other. To, I mean, I've seen this movie you know, five or six times and I was still you know, on the edge of my seat on this <laughs> viewing because he just builds these sequences so beautifully. It really is an exercise in building tension. And yeah. you can learn a lot from just watching that final clock tower sequence alone in how uh, each event that happens is heightening the tension further and further and further. And then when all of it is released all at once, or at least one at a time, Marty's own conflicts with the, the DeLorean not starting and then Doc's conflicts with uh, the cables not being connected... Uh, they sort of resolve themselves all at once and it adds to an even more satisfying conclusion. Yeah, it it seems like something that annoys me with a lot of movies is where they'll they'll make it just the last second. Uh, Most of the time it just feels cheap because I'm like, oh, of course we're gonna we're gonna make it. But here, even knowing that this is a film, like an 80s movie that everybody knows and I've known the ending without seeing it, I still kind of found myself like, oh, like wiping my brow <laughs> just as it passes the the power line because they were threats. In a lot of other movies, it's just it's a timer, um, and the only thing that we're worried about is can they run fast enough. But here, like you said, it's you know it's the tree, 
And then once we think we got the power line fixed, now the other end of the cable is like, there's always something. And so even as Marty's, you know, gunning it and he's about to hit it, we, we should be thinking, oh no, is he going to make it to 88 miles an hour? Is he going to get it fast enough? Of course he is. But here it's like, no, is, I mean, whether he does it or not, we still got Doc on the sideline. Like, I mean, even first time viewers, I think we all kind of know he's going to make it, but that's just a testament to how well crafted because we know it, but we're still, you know, on the edge of our seat. Um, so this is one of those moments, and I'm I'm always impressed when I see him where it is that kind of last minute and last millisecond victory, and instead of kind of rolling my eyes, I'm wiping my brow like, oh man, that was, you know, <laughs> that was a really well staged climax. Did this win anything for editing? Do you know, editing, I'm not entirely sure. That climax is a masterpiece of editing. Let me double check real quick. Um, while I'm looking this up, is there anything story-wise that you take away as far as, like, lessons or relevance or anything like that? I mean, there's a couple of really on-the-nose ones, but what else do you take away from just the story itself? Um, as far as the story itself, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I, I may be able to, you know, gather more on rewatches, but as far as the story goes, it's mainly just... I'm here and I need to get back here because, you know, I've, I've got a life back there. And so a lot of the messages come from, you know, the characters in their arcs. And so I, I think we've talked about a lot of them, just um, the idea of being able to empathize more and the idea of the of, of fighting for what you want in a, in a healthy way and, you know, fighting for others and things like that. And uh, no, you you were on. Uh, I'm sorry, I said you were. On, we were on your show for uh, for Lord of the Rings, and you know one of the the central themes, if not the central theme of all those films, is just friendship and loyalty and things like that. And so, I I always do like it in films when we just get positive friendships and positive family dynamics, and it's uh, the movie presents that as a good thing. So to see the the concern, like the real heartbreaking concern that Marty has for Doc and and likewise with Doc and Marty um or Doc towards Marty there's there is a sense of friendship and it, it promotes you know that kind of positivity so as far as you know just messages I got from the story I'm not really sure what I'll point to but with the characters I feel like every, every character as fun as they are are also saying something you know even if it's on the nose it's it's a good thing to be on the nose about. It's it's good to be very straightforward with with things that are are positive like that. So um, I, I really like that it focused on all the those kind of aspects of this friendship. Yeah, um, a couple things that stood out to me is just the uh, how crippling the fear of failure can be, and you know, where you see just the uh, you know when you're afraid to you know, take a step out there, how that just kind of held back George's life for the whole time. And just, you know, you know, standing up for yourself. But what they really stuck out to me, uh, I guess, you know, with all the current uh, allocations, you know, the scene with uh, uh, Biff, Biff and Lorraine in the car just kind of was, I guess, that much more disturbing, you know, with all the, um, just the uh, allegations that are coming out, just you know, the importance of standing up for others if you are in a situation like that. I think that's a, a pretty key one that I don't know if I've always picked up on super strongly. Um, but Marty, even though he knows that he has to do certain things to bring his parents back together, 
there are times when he can't help but act in a way that is going to draw more attention to himself than to the two of them. Like when he sees Biff borderline molesting his mother in the school cafeteria Mm -hmm. and he goes and he pulls her away, he says, take your meat hooks off. And then he realizes that Biff is two feet taller than him. And then he has to sort of back off and straighten his collar. But that's an instance where he stands up for his mother, uh, even though he's talking to George at the time. And there's later when uh, George is going to, or has started to talk to Lorraine and is about to ask her to the, dance in the cafe and biff shows up and is about to try and steal money from george and perhaps beat him up and marty is like well here i go again i have to step in because it's the right thing to do whether Mm -hmm. this is the right the right thing to do as far as my future is concerned or whether it's just the right thing to do in the moment he goes with the right thing to do in the moment and trips biff and ensues this giant (laughs) skateboard chase that is a lot of fun but in both of those instances i mean his job during this week of time is to get his parents back together or he's going to cease to exist yeah. but there are times when he's forced to act in opposition to that goal because of decency mm-hmm. and, and I, I was just gonna say um one of the just to go back to the the scene in the car i i completely understand why scenes like that gave you know disney cause to kind of back away from it <laughs> but I, I think that it, it really works for the film because you can kind of, you can judge the importance or the weight a film gives certain behavior by the importance of the resolution. Um, and the resolution of stopping that was, you know, a lifetime of a healthy marriage, you know. So it, I, I feel like a, a movie, a safer movie or a safer version of this movie would have had that moment be more like what was going on in the cafeteria where, I mean, it's still wrong. He's still forcing himself upon her, but it's more of just, you know, a very public area kind of all all you're saying is that you hate, knock it off. And they kind of have to just because there's eyes watching. Um, And then to say, you know, oh, because of that, then they fell in love, but to go as dark as they did kind of, it, it rewards the character for stopping a crime. Like, that heinous mm-hmm. uh, and so the movie gives it weight because he's not just oh that's the nice guy who kept uh Biff's hands off me in the cafeteria it's like no that's the guy who saved me from the car incident like that was a very important moment and so i think the heaviness of that scene is rewarded you know it, it makes the film stronger because you know initially their relationship was the the whole beginning of their relationship was circumstance you know she felt sorry for him whereas now they have a legitimate reason for being together and their affection at least you know his his affection for her you know is on full display so um giving that scene importance makes their happy life in the future almost a little bit more believable because you know that what he did had weight you know and she saw it Right, that makes sense, that that their marriage, eventual marriage, comes out of a place of actual relationship building rather than one just feeling sorry for the other. Um, And, you know, the movie, of course, does say a lot about self-confidence and believing in yourself. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. And uh, the, the big example of that is the fact that George and Lorraine, and by extension, their kids' lives change so much. 
from the beginning of the film to the end of the film because George has basically created a whole new life for himself where he's not letting people walk over him and he's showing his affection to his wife because he has affection for his wife and again their relationship wasn't born out of one feeling sorry for each other um so being self-confident putting faith in your own abilities but also trusting and loving each other results in a better life and so i i think that's the other bigger takeaway for me from the film yeah are, are there any other final thoughts or things we haven't said or things you want to sum up about your first experience james before we close off uh, I guess just a summary of it is, you know, I mean, what I said at the very beginning is I, I, I understand now. I, I, I understand the love that people have. This is more than just a, a fun 80s movie. You know, we have a laundry list of fun 80s movies, but this cemented its place in cinema because it's not just a fun story that's nostalgic for those who, you know, watched it at the time. It, it's taught in film school because it's, Beyond all of the great things it has, like, you know, character and heart and positive messages, he's able to back it up with the technical aspect. You know, it's, you know, it, whether it was nominated or won, it, it earned and should have at least been nominated for, you know, editing just because of, like, it, how, how tight the script is, um, how efficient the scene to scenes, like, transitions are, like, everything is pushing the story forward. Um, even in the most lighthearted, fun moments, they're still, they're able to, to evoke a sense of urgency. Like, as much fun as we're having, we know what the scene needs to accomplish. And so we're always kind of gleefully at the edge of our seat um, for almost the entire film's runtime. So it, it's got the fun and heart and humor of all of the 80s classics, but it's just such a well-executed film that it, it, puts itself above so many others. Well, James, I'm so glad that your first experience was such a positive one. Uh, I did look up the Academy Awards it was nominated for. It won for Best Sound Effects Editing and were nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Original Song for The Power of Love, and then also for Best Sound Mixing. Um, so, good. yeah, yeah, it, it is an Academy Award-winning film for sound effects editing, which definitely makes sense when you can uh, when you consider all of the the DeLorean sound effects, the time travel sound effects, the skateboarding scene sound effects, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the DeLorean um, sounds are all iconic now. Yeah, they are. I mean, you could you could just play a sound bite of the DeLorean driving or speeding up or revving up its uh, flux capacitor, and so many people would be able to recognize it. <laughs> as it's it. fluxing. Yeah, <laughs> as it's fluxing. <laughs> well, um, as... I think that wraps up the end of the episode. That's the end of the official 67th episode of Cinescope. I'm so glad that the three of us were able to meet up and do this together. It's always fun to meet up with other podcasters and to do stuff like this in person. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, it, this week has been especially awesome just because not only are we able to record here live, but, we, you know, our last episode was only a few days ago and our last one was the only one we've recorded live. So I'm I'm finally able to. Put, even though I've seen you know profile pictures and spoken over Skype, I I can now physically put the face to the the voice and uh, yeah, it was great being able to do this live. Well, James, you and I don't live too far from each other. Even though Gabriel has to go back home later tonight, um, maybe that we can watch the the next two in the trilogy sometime soon. I would love that. I, that's that's how 
effective this movie was when it was over. I was like, well, I've got to see what they're doing in the future now. <laughs> yeah, great. And beyond just being a great film, this whole trilogy is a lesson in how to make a film series. Oh, I, I love the next two films in this uh, series, especially the third one, almost as much as this one. So uh, you're in for a treat when we do do that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Now, contact for the show, you can find us at facebook.com slash podcast and at CinescopePod on Twitter. Please consider going to iTunes, rating, reviewing, subscribing. You can also do that on the Apple Podcast app on your iOS device. And if you have feedback or ideas, you can email me at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that link to, or that email address to contact me regarding co-hosting if you have a movie that you love that you think you can talk about. Now... The two of you, where can people find you online? Whoever wants to go first. Uh, well, we, we have a podcast called Underrated, and we uh, in a day or two, our Justice League review will be up. But normally, we just talk about our films that we think weren't uh, received well enough. And, we're, and we, as we said, we actually will be kind of rebooting the show. So after the Justice League episode, it'll be about a month, and then we'll come back as a show called Franchise Fatigue, which we will be talking about a uh, film series. So be looking, up, be looking out for that. And you can find, uh, so you can find that at uh, underratedpodcast.com and on Facebook as Underrated Podcast, and Twitter as Underrated underscore pod. Yeah, this uh, may find its way onto that new series as we look across <laughs> the three movies. Um, Definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah he pretty much um, got it all. That's as far as what we do podcasting. Um, that's where a lot of it is. Um, I, I also write for a site called Article Asylum. Uh, you can go to our website at articleasylum.wordpress.com. Um, it's primarily a DC fan site, um, but we try to address things from just general pop culture. Um, so I'm I'm currently in anticipation towards The Last Jedi, writing a series where I rank and review all of the Star Wars films. So that's currently what I'm writing. Um, so between underrated and that, that's uh, that's pretty much where you can find me. Okay, and the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And then my other podcast, An American Workplace, where we talk about The Office every week. Recorded a new episode of that earlier today. You can find that where podcasts can be found and at WorkplacePodcast.com. All show notes and contact information for this show can be found at TheCinescopePodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you, Gabriel and James, for this special uh, edition of the Cinescope podcast and returning to talk about my favorite movie. Thanks for having us. This was a blast. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for reaching out. Uh, it was awesome to make, make good use of all three of our time here in Texas. <laughs> yes, sir. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 67. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 68. Have fun and celebrate movies. Thank you.